The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles or apps, would you open them, turn them on to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're actually beginning chapter 9. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 together. Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. Two things, you received a uh, bookmark when you walked in from Hope Pregnancy Center. This is the week of Roe versus Wade, and uh, there's a great ministry in our community, Hope Pregnancy Center, and uh, they are a ministry, if you, haven't, if you don't support them, it would be a great afternoon to support them, a uh, great afternoon to volunteer. Some of you looking for places to volunteer in our community, uh, they help young girls choose life, and they also have a great program for those who haven't to go through a time of healing. You'll find in the hallway, in the current racks, a uh, aqua-colored insert to give you a little more information on Hope Pregnancy Center. Great ministry. I've been privileged to be on their advisory board for uh, two or three decades now. So uh, many of our folks participate in that ministry as we choose life together. Men, we've got over 200 men signed up to get away next weekend. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, 8 o'clock here for a regular golf or disc golf. Take your pick and choose your poison and uh, get away for the day. That'd be great. If not, meet us at uh, Camp Tejas. It's a great time. Let me challenge you as dads. Uh, maybe you've got sons or son-in-laws in our body, maybe grandsons or uh, maybe son-in-laws. Great opportunity to invite them, pay their way, get away, and uh, have them spend a weekend with you. It's a great opportunity to do, do that together. So consider doing that. Invite them to join you and uh, join us at Camp Tejas. Secondly, Perspectives. How many of you were at Perspectives last week? We had over 100 people at Perspectives. Uh, it, uh, the last free night is tonight. It's on the UMHB campus. You heard the video. Great opportunity to see what God is doing in our world. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin. I'm sorry, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Mark 8, 27. We're going to look at various sections of God's word together. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of the Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Father, we have uh, worshipped in song, we have worshipped around your table, and now we desire to be taught your word. And so I pray that you would teach us, teach us about uh, the veil and how it might be lifted. We pray in Christ's name, amen. This morning we're looking at a message I've entitled, The Veil Lifted, Lifting the Veil, the Veil Being Lifted. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a variety show called Art Linkletter. If you're a baby boomer, how many of you remember that show? They had a segment on it called uh, Kids Ask the Darndest Questions. And they would put four kids in chairs and ask them questions. And it, it was a hoot because of the way kids responded. Well, I've got the opposite of that. There was a junior high teacher, science teacher, who told the kids they could ask any question they wanted on the last day of class, and she would attempt to answer them. I, I've got over 100 of those questions. I'll not read all 100 to you. But here are a couple of questions that were asked in this uh, seventh grade science class. Corn oil is made from corn. Vegetable oil is made from vegetables. Where does baby oil come from? (laughs) Great question, right? I mean, you might as well follow along. Here's a second question. Did you ever notice that when you blow in a dog's face, he gets mad at you, but when you take him on a car ride, he sticks his head out the window? (laughs) How many of you have a dog just like that? You blow in their face, you know, and and then all of a sudden you get in the car and they want to stick their head out or jump out. Uh, here's another question. Why does fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? 
you got a fat chance of doing it, a slim chance of doing it. I mean, he's right. And then my favorite one is, who was the first person to look at a cow and say, I think I'll squeeze those dangly things and drink whatever comes out of them? <laughs> I mean, really, only a junior high boy would ask that question, right? <laughs> but it's a great question. Who was that guy? I don't know. I don't want to meet him, I don't think. So uh, the most important question that you will ever be asked and can answer is the one that Christ asked the disciples in our text today. Who do you say that I am? Uh, there are a lot of questions you're going to be asked in life. A lot of questions. But the singular most important question you will ever answer is the question that Jesus asked of his disciples, who do you say that I am? You, you see, your response to that question determines where you'll spend eternal life. I, I mean, as a result of that, it's the most singular important question you will ever answer in your life. Who is this man? Who is he? Who, who is this man who performs miracles, who speaks with great authority, and who calls out the religious leaders? Who is he? Who, who is this man who opens the eyes of the blind, who speaks in parables to conceal truth, who condemns the Pharisees, who feeds the hungry, and claims to be a king? Who is he? It's a singular most important question you will answer in your entire life. Well, as we begin looking at this text, what we'll see is that the veil of revealing who Christ is is very cloudy to those around him. It was cloudy to the religious leaders. It was cloudy to his disciples. Who was he? There, there was a veil that prevented them from fully understanding exactly who he was. It, we'll, we'll back up in the, in the text of Mark and take a look at that. Beginning in Mark chapter 8, let's back all the way up to verse 10. In verse 10, it says, Immediately the disciples, he entered the boat with the disciples and came to the district of Dalmatia. And the Pharisees came to him, and they began to argue with him, and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. If you're writing your Bibles, circle the word to test him. That was their purpose of asking these questions. And, and sighing deeply. By the way, last week in one of the hours, I said Jesus only sighed deeply once in the Scriptures. That was back in chapter 8, uh, verse 34, uh, 734, looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply. I was wrong. He sighs a couple of times. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation, leaving them again. And bar- he embarked and went to the other side. The Pharisees come to him. They ask for a sign. Jesus looks at them. He knows it's a test, and he says, no go. No go. You really don't want me to perform a miracle so you can believe. You just want to test me to see if I can really do it. You see, the veil is still cloudy. The Pharisees don't understand who this man is. They don't understand who he is. So there's a second encounter. It's an encounter between Jesus and the disciples beginning in verse 14. It's really one of the funniest encounters, I believe, in scriptures with Jesus and disciples. Remember back in verse 10, they're in a boat. They're getting ready to cross the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at verse 14, it says, They had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So they get in the boat, and the disciples look around and said, Who bought the bread? Judas, you're the money guy. Did you bring the bread? Nope, I don't have the bread. Who brought the bread? Peter, you always have a snack. Did you bring the bread? Nope, I I didn't bring the bread. Andrew, you're the guy who stole fish and uh, bread from the little guy back when we did the 5,000 feeding of 5,000. Did you save any of that bread? Nope, I don't have any bread. No bread. They get in the boat. They're getting ready to have a workout. They're going to paddle across the Sea of Galilee, and they get in the boat without any bread. Jesus, there's this interruption in verse 15, was giving orders. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
whenever you read the word leaven, two things come to your mind in the scriptures. First of all, leaven refers to bread. I mean, you use leaven so that it might rise. Secondly, whenever you read the word leaven in scriptures, it refers to that which is hypocritical, that which is evil, that which is sinful. So he says, watch out for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Watch out for the evil of Herod and his followers. So it's a warning. It's a warning to the disciples. Well, the disciples in the boat, they're, they're, wanting, they're worried about bread. Jesus uses the word yeast. And so he's talking about spiritual things. They're talking about physical things. Look at the next verse. In the next verse, the disciples began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. You can hear the disciples in the boat. Peter says, I'm hungry. I want to eat. Who brought the bread? They raise one loaf of bread. There are 12 disciples and Jesus. There are 13 people with, with one loaf of bread. And they realize they have a problem. And so they're arguing back and forth about bread. They've got Jesus in the boat. They're arguing about bread. Jesus must be shaking his head at this point in time. He must be looking at these boys and saying, maybe I need to start all over. Maybe I need a new group of disciples. Maybe, I mean, they just don't get it. Gary, how do you know that? Because of the next verse. Jesus, aware of this, that is their discussion, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Have your ears, have your eyes, have they not seen? Have your ears, have they not heard? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12 baskets. And when I broke seven loaves for 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces of bread did you pick up? They said seven. And he said to them, Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Do you not understand? Don't you get it, guys? But what's Jesus saying here? Well, the disciples are arguing, said, we need some bread. We've got one loaf of bread. There are 13 of us in here. We're hungry. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, boys, don't you have eyes to see, ears to hear? Don't you remember what just happened? You want bread? You got one loaf? I can bury you in bread. I just fed 5,000 men and families, probably up to 10,000 people and 4,000. We fed almost 15,000 people with just a handful of loaves of bread. And you're in the boat with me and you're worried about bread. You don't get it. You don't know who I am. You You see, the veil is still cloudy to them. It's unclear to them. Jesus could have buried them in bread. Jesus could have made enough bread to sop up the water in the Sea of Galilee if he wanted to. I mean, they're in the boat with Jesus, who has just created all this bread, who just fed all these people, and they're in the boat arguing about bread. Where are we going to eat? How are we going to get this stuff? And Jesus says, do you not hear? Do you not see? Do you not understand? Understand what? I mean, that's a question that begs to be answered, doesn't it? I mean, he concludes a section and he looks at them saying, do you not understand? Understand what? You see, the veil remains cloudy for the disciples as to who Jesus was. Who is this man? They obviously don't get it. He says, you don't understand. They didn't understand that he was the bread of life that could satisfy any of their cravings. That in the midst of what they perceived as a trial, in the midst of what they perceived as a problem, 
They've got Jesus in the boat with them who've just fed over 10,000 people in one setting, over 4,000 people in another setting. They've got Jesus in the boat with them, and they're worried about bread. Can I submit to you I'm a lot like the disciples sometimes? See, sometimes things come down our life. They may be trials, they may be struggles, they may be issues. And we've got Jesus with us. He has saved us. He has indwelt us through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has indwelt us. And we have all that. And sometimes we're like the disciples in the boat. We're crying out, where's the bread? And we have the bread of life who can solve anything. We've got the bread of life who can supply everything that we need. So trials come our way, and rather than turning to Jesus, we turn to ourselves. We turn to our intellect, we turn to our abilities, we turn to to, to trying to fill the emptiness in our life through something else. We go shop more, we go spend more, we go buy more, we find another high, we take another drink, we sneak another peak, we schedule another rendezvous, and we're still empty on the inside when we've got the Savior who is with us. That's the struggle of disciples. The struggle of disciples. I mean, they had Jesus in the boat with them. He could have provided them with the buffet of all buffets if they had asked. But instead, they're arguing with one another over who brought the bread rather than turning to the greatest solution in the world. That's Jesus who's in the boat with them. John Piper said this, The soul has an inconsolable longing. It tries to satisfy this longing with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas, drugs, aesthetic rigors, and managerial excellence. But the longing remains, what does this mean? Some of you ask the question, what else is there? I've climbed this mountain. I've gotten to the top. What else is there? I've achieved this. I've accomplished this. What else is there? I've done the things that I'm supposed to do. I've gone through life. I've gotten a degree. I've gotten a job. I've gotten married. I've got kids. And now I'm bored. What else is there? What should I do? Where should I go? What happens next? Piper concludes this by saying, C.S. Lewis answers this question by saying, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. You see, if I tried to fill the emptiness of my life with the things of this world, it'll never be satiated. It'll never be full. I will always be empty. Jesus, we need bread. (laughs) Don't even ask him. They argue with one another. Who brought the bread when the bread of life is in the boat with them? So when you go through trials in life or even successes in life, make sure you turn to the one who is obviously right there. Don't be blinded to that. The veil was cloudy. The veil was cloudy. One author says, as human beings, our greatest need is to know the Lord. We can deny it, suppress it, substitute something for it. But deep within us lies a hunger that can be satisfied only when the Lord, with the Lord himself. Until we have him, we will never be satisfied. Some of you are trying to be satisfied outside of the Savior. It's not going to work. Back in the 60s, if you listened to rock and roll music, good music, versus I don't know what that stuff is today, but anyway, <laughs> I go in the gym, they're playing hip-hop and all this other stuff. I'm thinking, God, I'm glad I can't make out these words. I don't know what it is. But back then, if you were back then, there was a song, and that song was, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. How many of you remember that song from that day and age? We're going to sing it together. You ready? Yeah, we're not yeah, I used to, in the 60s, I had long hair. Whenever I hear those songs, I go, <laughs> trying to get the hair off of my deal. 
I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I don't get no satisfaction. The song is right. When you try and get all your satisfaction from the things of this world, you've been created for something greater, and only the Lord can satisfy that emptiness within your life. Quit trying to find it somewhere else. Quit trying to find it another sexual exploit. The next big deal. The, the, the next high. Quit trying to find it that way. Turn to the Savior, the bread of life, and let him fill you. Well, Jesus moves, or Mark moves from that episode to another episode that's rather strange. It's found in verses 22 through 26. It's a miracle, but it's a strange miracle. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes, Jesus in the spitting in these couple of miracles here. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking about. Then again he laid hands upon him, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus said to him, said to him sent him home and said, do not even enter the village. Do, do you see what's happening here? I, I mean, they bring this blind man to Jesus, and Jesus spits in the guy's eyes, and he says, can you see? And he says, well, kind of. I mean, kind of, what I see are men, they look like trees. So uh, the miracle didn't quite take place all the way. And then Jesus touches them again and the man's healed. What, how, what, what is this about? It's, a two, it's the only two-phase miracle in the Bible. Only one. It's a two-stage two miracle. Why is that? I, I mean, the first time, Jesus spits in the guy's eyes, and the guy looks out and he says, well, I do see men, but they look like trees. It's like going to the optometrist's office. You know, you know the times they go, one, two, two, three, three, four. Clear, better, worse. I don't know. They look the same to me. I got one eye. <laughs> I just sat there covered this up. I don't see anything. I don't know. It's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> one, two, two, three. Jesus touches this guy. All of a sudden he gets sight, but it's only partial sight. Jesus messed up, right? Jesus, you need to finish the miracle. Why did Jesus do a two-stage miracle? I mean, it's odd, it's strange, it's the only one in the whole Bible. Why? You've got Google, look it up. Tell me next week. (laughs) I mean, obviously Jesus is seeking to communicate something much deeper, isn't he? And he's trying to communicate something besides just the miracle. Sure, he's showing that he is the Messiah. And Isaiah says whoever the Messiah is would heal the blind and he would give the deaf ears to hear. But Jesus has got to be communicating something deeper than that if it's a two-stage miracle and it's only one he does in the Scriptures. So all I can do is look at the context, the context of what Mark gives us. In the context of what Mark gives us, he's talking about this cloudy veil. He's talking about the Pharisees don't understand, the disciples don't understand. And so all I can imagine is Jesus does this so disciples can see this guy is like you. At first he sees partially, but then he sees fully. Right now you see partially, one day you'll see fully. That's the only sense I can make out of this. I read about eight, nine commentaries per week as I'm preparing for Mark. 
and uh, it's interesting what people try and do with this. But as I see it, as I read it, as I look at it, Jesus has healed other people. He's healed them at a distance. He's healed them up close. He's healed them with faith. He's healed them without faith. And Jesus uses this time to perform this twofold miracle, I think, to teach a lesson to the disciples in the context that I'm looking at so that they can see you see through a veil right now, but one day you'll see clearly, and that day is coming quickly. That day is coming quickly. This two-phase miracle, if you will. By the way, while we're looking at miracles, let me, let me make a statement about faith and healing. I believe that what, people have asked me all the time, so Gary, what do you believe about healing? I, I believe God can heal. God's in the business of healing. God can use many of you or in the medical community. God can use your hands, your gifts, your talents, your studies, your abilities to heal. But ultimately, he's the healer. And sometimes he chooses to heal this side of heaven, sometimes the other side. Don't be duped by those people who tell you if you have sickness, if you have disease, it's the result of your lack of faith or it's a result of your sin. Now, sometimes it is lack of faith and sometimes it is sin, but we are placing a lot of shame and a lot of guilt on a lot of people by making them believe that they are sick or that they have disease because of their lack of faith or because of their sin. Those same people will quote Isaiah 53, by his stripes where he'll claim healing in Christ. I will. That healing in Isaiah 53 is a greater healing of the body, it's a healing of the soul. It's a healing of the heart. By his stripes, the stripes on our Savior's back, we can be healed eternally. Jesus asked a question in the context, was it a prophet a man if he gained the world and lose his soul? You see, there's a terrible false theology out there that says, if you have enough faith, you will be well. If you get rid of all the sin, you won't be sick. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And people that teach that, they ought to cut their tongues out. Well, not really, I mean... That would just correct their theology. (laughs) Terrible theology. I've met so many people that have come to me and said, you know, Pastor, I must have sin because I've got sickness. Pastor, I've got faith, but it must not be enough faith because I'm not well. The first person that taught that in America back in the 1900s, a lady named Catherine Coleman. You know where Catherine Coleman is now? Dead. (laughs) Uh, The person that that really propagated that was a guy named Kenneth Hagin. You know what happened to Kenneth Hagin? He died. See, people that teach that, they're going to feel mighty funny when they come to God and say, I shouldn't be here. i got plenty of faith. And I've said a hundred times, the statistics on death are very impressive. If you haven't looked at them, they're very impressive. One out of every one. So I don't care how much faith you have, one day you're going to die. Doesn't matter. I like what Chuck Swindoll says on this matter. He, he teaches it this way. He says, faith is not a desire to get what we want from God, but it's a desire to accept what God wants to give us. Amen? See, that's what it is. These people that make it all about them, it's not about us. It's all about him. It's about what he wants to do, about when he wants to do it, about how he wants to do it. The Norwegian theologian Ole Hallesby, I quoted this way back, the first sermon I preached after I was diagnosed with the disease that I have. And I love what he says. I agree with it fully. Lord, if, it'll be, if, if it will be to your glory, he'll suddenly. If it will be glorify you more, he'll gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant be sick for a while. And if it glorify your name even more, take him to heaven. Can you pray that? I, I, I've got that quote on my desk. I've been praying it every day. God, I, I'd love to be healed. And if you want to do it instantaneously, I volunteer. If you want to do it gradually, I'm all over that. And if it is being sick for a while, that's fine. If you want to take me to heaven, I want to make sure that I go out walking with you. I want to bring you great glory.
Can you pray that? See, one day we're all going to be in the same situation. Well, the veil begins to clear. The veil begins to clear. Jesus went out along with the disciples who visited Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned disciples. And he throws them a fastball right down the middle. I mean, this is a fastball right down the middle. Those of you who know baseball, I mean, that's what you want. He's up at the plate, and Jesus asks a question, Who do they, look at your scriptures, who do they say that I am? So, so he's asking a generic question. He says, the people we're in touch with, the people around us, who do they say that I am? And the disciples all chime in. Look at verse 28, circle the word they. They told him. They all respond. They all jump in. Everybody wants answers. It's like a teacher who asks a simple question in class, and all the kids raise their hand, oh, 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 call on me. And so they all respond. Some say you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, and some the prophets. Now Jesus comes with a change-up. And he questioned them, and he said, but who do you say that I am? Not who do they say that I am, but now here's the change-up coming across. Who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, nobody wants to step in the batter's box. Nobody wants to answer the question. Because it's real personal now. You, you can see Peter hiding behind John, hoping he doesn't get called on or. Not Peter, he's the one that answers the question, but one of the other disciples. And you can see somebody looking down at the dirt and somebody kicking a rock and everybody looking in a different direction. They don't want to answer this question, but Peter steps up to the plate. And Peter jacks one. Like Babe Ruth would jack, well, Babe Ruth was left-handed, so like Babe Ruth (laughs) would jack one. I mean, he just jacks it. It's out of the park. It's gone. Thou art the Christ. And later on we read, or we read in the parallel passage in Matthew, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus would say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And also he would say, Peter, upon this rock, the rock being his confession, I will build my church. Peter, you the man, baby. Peter, you've answered the question. You're in the Faith Hall of Fame. Peter, this is a watershed moment in gospel history. The Father in heaven's mouth is agape. Finally, the disciples are getting it. Every angel in heaven screams out in joy because now at least one of the disciples get it. The veil is clearing. Who is this man? You are the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's applause in heaven because Peter finally gets it. One of the disciples can answer the question. But the veil has not been lifted entirely. You see, one moment Peter knocks it out the park, the next moment he stumbles rounding third base. You see, Jesus pulls him aside now. In verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's how he referred to himself most often in the Scriptures, must suffer many things. And he would go to Jerusalem and there the elders and the chief priests and the scribes would kill him. And after three days, he would rise again. So he comes to me, he says, uh, guys, you're right. I am the Messiah, the Christos. Peter, you got it. Heaven revealed that to you, Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the veil was not fully lifted. He did not fully understand because Jesus turns to him and says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. And you know what Peter says? Peter says, Jesus, can we talk for a minute? Can, can, can we step aside from the other boys for a minute and have a, a little conversation here? Jesus, you can't tell that to the guys. You're a king. 
You're the Christos. You're the Messiah. You can't say you're going to die. So Gary, how do you know that? Are you making that? No, look in the scriptures. Look at what it says in the next verse. It says, and he, Jesus, was taking that plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking God. At one moment, Peter's saying, you are the Christos, you're the son of the living God. The next moment is he takes him aside and he rebukes him. He, he, he says, you cannot go that way and you're familiar with the response of Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind I must suffer. Under, circle the word must there. I must suffer, Peter. I mean, Peter went from a hero to a zero in a heartbeat, just like that. Penthouse to outhouse, boom, gone. He didn't fully see it. Didn't fully understand it. You know, sometimes we're like Peter. Sometimes we're like, we want to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, that's not the way you should be doing things. I, we, we want to turn to God and say, God, you should, you fill in that blank. God, God, you should change my spouse. God, you should give me a better job. God, you should, or we say, God, why don't you fill in that blank? And, and we are really telling God what to do. Ask Job how that worked out for him. Ask Job sometime. Read the end of the book of Job. Ask, ask Job how it worked out for him to begin to question God. You see, God turned the table and said, Job, I've just got a few simple questions for you, Job. Just a couple of simple questions. Where were you when I created life, Job? Job, how does... And, and God asked... There, there, there are two, three chapters of questions from God to Job, and Job can't answer a single one of them. God, you should. God, why don't you? There are times when we think we know more than God. There was a farmer who he and his teenage son were working the fields one day, and in mid-afternoon they decided to take a break. They sat under a big pecan tree, and they pulled out the snacks that Mom had prepared for them. And they were next to a pumpkin patch, and the farmer turned to his teen son and said, Son, isn't it strange that God puts such heavy pumpkins on frail vines that have so little strength that they have to trail on the ground? And he looked at the pecan tree above them and said, Son, isn't it strange that... God would take a big old tree like this that could hold up men like us and put such small pecans in them. Then a breeze blew and a pecan dislodged from the tree and hit the farmer right on top of the head. His teenage son turned to him and said, You know, Dad, it's a good thing there wasn't a pumpkin up there instead of a pecan. (laughs) You ever think you know more than God? Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Imagine that. God, you should. God, why don't you? And we begin to question and we begin to wonder and basically we're no different than Peter pulling God aside. But here's the good news. The veil is finally raised. We call it the transfiguration. It begins in verse 2 of chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, brought them high into a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. He, he was transformed is literally what the word says. And his garments became white, radiantly, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them. Moses appeared to them. The great prophet, the great lawgiver came to them. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter and James and John are on their face, it says in the parallel passages in Matthew. And they were terrified. Look at verse 6. He did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. A cloud formed over them. A voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Underline the words, listen to him. 
And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. They came down the mountain, etc. What's the transfiguration about? The transfiguration is about Jesus raising the God raising the veil of who Jesus was. You see, he's just told the disciples, I'm going to die, suffer, I'm going to die. They're questioning who he is, if he has power, majesty, and might. And he says, let me show you a little glimpse of who I am. And the flap was pulled back on the tent for a second. The veil is lifted for a second. They can see Jesus in all of his glory. From this point on, the disciples would know who he is, and they would trust him fully. You see, the veil is pulled up. Later on, John would write about this experience. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and full of truth. Peter would write in First Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, referring to the transfiguration. You see, all of a sudden, God pulls back the flap of the tent. He allows a glimpse into glory. He removes the veil for a second, and they see Jesus and who he is. See, in the beginning, it was cloudy. The Pharisees didn't know who he was. The disciples didn't know, who is this man? The most important question we can answer. And they're saying, we're not sure. Who is this man? Well, Peter says he's the Christos. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But then he falls flat on his face in another second. And Jesus says, come with me, boys. Let's climb to the mountain. I'll show you who I am. And the flap of the tent of his humanity is taken away for a second, and they see his glory. And then it's closed, and they can say, we know who he is. He is the Messiah, and we're going to follow even to our death. Worship team, would you guys join me? So here's the question I have for you. Who do you say that he is? You know, over the years, I can't tell you how many dozens and dozens of times folks tell me, you never take your eyes on me when you're preaching. Your eyes are on me the whole time. (laughs) Singular nail. My eye is on every one of you. (laughs) It is. It's on you. Because I'm asking you the question. I'm not asking you who do they say that he is. I'm not asking you the question who does your spouse say or your grandma say or your godly grandpa say. I'm asking you, and you personally, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Because the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, some of your eyes are veiled like blindness. You do not see Christ for who he is. I've been praying for you all week. I've been praying that the veil would be lifted. You could see Jesus. You accept him as your Savior today. All week I've been praying for you. And then it says later on in that Second Corinthians passage, those that know him should live in his power. What God the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That means obey him. And I've been praying for you. I've been praying today that we would see a glimpse of Jesus so that some might accept him as Savior for the first time as the veil is lifted. And that others who have not been listening to him and obeying him, would say, I'm I'm tired of trying to fill the emptiness of my life with the things of this world. Now I'll follow the Savior. I've been praying for you all week. I studied this passage on Tuesday morning. And that's been my prayer since Tuesday morning for everybody that walks through the doors of TBC this weekend. God, those that... Their eyes have been blinded and the veil is not clear, but it's cloudy. Lift it so they can see the Savior. 
and those who are seeking to fill their emptiness with the things of this world, more whatever. God, bring them to a point of repentance. Bring them to a point of desperation so that they'll see Jesus can fill that emptiness and he's enough. Who is this king of glory? Who is he? You do business with God right where you are and let's stand and sing and worship him and answer that question. Conscience reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this King of Glory who offers it to me? Who is this King of Angels? Oh, blessed Prince of Peace. Revealing things of heaven and all its mysteries. And my spirit's ever longing for his grace in which to stand. And who is this King of glory, the Son of God?
and omega the beginning and the end the fairest one you're the rose of Sharon the lily of the valley you're the one that we worship you're the one we honor we go our way praising you 